Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I am David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we're going to do on today's podcast is we're going to do our weekly check-in, which is something we've been doing every week for the last few months, just to see how everyone's doing, given all the world events that are occurring right now. Uh, we got some follow-up on some film news, um, and then we are going to move into some what we've been watching before concluding with an in-depth review of Hamilton, which is, you know, I saw some discussion online today of like, what is Hamilton? Uh, is it a movie? Is it a concert film? Is it just a, a filmed version of a musical? It's a weird hybrid. Yeah. Weird weird hybrid. So uh, anyway, it just hit Disney Plus, and I think uh, it was trending on Twitter this week, and lots of people were watching it. I'm looking forward to diving into discussing this show with you folks. Evidently so, not, it is not eligible for the Oscars. Whatever whatever you may deem it to be, it is not yeah. eligible for an Oscar. Maybe it's going to go with the, the Emmys route. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, they, they, the, the Oscar eligibility has already been settled for uh, Hamilton. So uh, in any case, if you are looking for more episodes of this podcast, check out SlashFilmCast.com. You can always email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Let's get into weekly check-ins. Last week on the podcast, we learned that Devinder Hardwar has just moved across the country. He's moved from New York City to Georgia. And Devinder, at this point, you've been settling into your house in Georgia for a little over a week now, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. So how is that going? Um, what are things in Georgia like? I've heard random bits and pieces of how there's like coronavirus cases spiking in Georgia, but oh, yeah. how have you experienced it? I mean, it's uh, the nice thing about being in Georgia and honestly anywhere outside of New York City is that uh, everything is a little more spread out and it's not super dense. So... It's, uh, you know, I've been, we've been sitting at the house, unpacking as much as we can, uh, running out for groceries very carefully. Uh, I see everyone around me not being careful. Um, a lot of grocery stores require masks and stuff to get in, but once people get in, people take off their masks, which is kind of defeats the purpose of this whole thing. Uh, I think for us, we're just getting the major things done over the past week I've had to buy, major appliances i've had to you know ha you know hack away at my yard a bit um had to settle on a car that we needed uh because i cannot go car free anymore so you know all, all of that i used carvana to get a car um without having to go Wait, to a dealer and everything so that was pretty how hard. long has it been since you've had a car and or driven regularly um hmm. when did i moved to new york 10 years over 10 years a decade a yeah Wow. Once you live in New York, you know, or anywhere with good public transportation, you don't really need to own a car. Yeah. Um, so I was always very jealous of that until yeah. COVID happened. And then yeah. I was not jealous of that anymore. Yep. But like basically I've always been very jealous of that before we moved, we basically couldn't leave, you know, the one mile area around our apartment because getting on the subway was too tough and you couldn't really take taxis. So either your choice in New York is to buy a car or just sit and hope that you can get through things safely. So yeah, it's a, it's a whole new thing to get used to. And Carvana, surprisingly enough, um, worked out really well for me. So yeah. What is Carvana? Is it, is it a way to like buy a car online basically? I guess you guys uh, are not seeing all these car commercials or TV commercials. Like So Carvana is a startup that kind of, they raised a lot of hype for themselves because they marketed these um, car vending machines a couple of years ago <laughs> so it's like um, this is the, this is the uh the uh, lime or bird scooter version yes. of a car you just yes. you drive as far as you need you get out you leave it running and you just walk <laughs> away and then people get into the car and keep going basically i mean it, it looks like a vending machine um some of their towers look like vending machines where you could be like okay i want this car i'm gonna go pick it up and you know the the 
mechanisms moves the cars around and brings the one you want to you i would say that sounds fantastical but if you've ever seen a car like a vertical car lot in new york or any major city like it's it's just that it's just you know well it it sounds fantastical because the experience of buying a car is very very painful in general exactly it's you need to talk with the guy and he talks with his manager 10 yep. times and you go back and forth on the price and then you have to sign like 50 p- pieces of paper and yep it's just a and you're, you're in an office for hours basically normally yes if you're dealing with this and i did not want to do that and even though a lot of dealers here are doing like home test drives and home delivery for cars i just i didn't want to fight them and they also didn't have the model i was looking for i was really looking to get like a rav4 hybrid something recent um, to be relatively environmentally conscious while also having enough room for baby stuff. So I ended up finding one in Carvana over the past week, just kind of went through the process of buying it and it was super easy. And on Sunday it was delivered to the front of my house and that was it. Just like have a car now and we can use it for seven days. And if we find anything wrong or we don't like it, we could just return it. Uh, And you know, without any fees, which is kind of nice. So to me, that's better than a test drive and yeah i'm just i'm digging it right now it's a it's a good looking car i'm gonna get it inspected soon this is a it's weird to have like a whole new phase of life happening within one week basically like the way i used to live <laughs> yeah is right. fundamentally wow. changed and the baby loves it my wife is getting used to it so it's it's all a big process right now all right that well, is, that's something man that is something yeah, to, to yeah. really really start a new chapter it's pretty wild yep Glad things are going okay. Uh, also, it sounds like uh, you've been marathoning Last of Us 2 in the last week, yeah? I have. I mean, so this game, I, I forget when it came out. I guess it came out <laughs> as we were moving or like, yeah, as we were yeah, packing it was like that. It was like around that week. But so yeah. for those who don't know, Last of Us 2 is sequel the sequel to one of the you know best and highest selling PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4 games of all time. Yeah. A, a game um, and, widely considered to be a masterpiece. So, yes. yeah. Both both the original and its sequel. And uh but yeah, you've been uh I was, you know, I think under normal circumstances you would have been playing it and then talking oh, yeah. with us about it, but you had a bunch of other things on your mind obviously. Most definitely. So I'm coming into this game like 2 weeks late, I guess. And uh, I sort of promised myself... Well, nothing myself, has happened in the online discourse yeah, since nothing then. has happened <laughs> apparently. I've just blacked out all of social media. Um, but apparently, uh, well, I was trying to like save myself for it, right? It was like, if we survive this move, then I can play this game because there was just too much work to do before that. And I've put at least, I think eight hours into it since, I don't know, Saturday or Sunday, whenever I was able to hook everything up and I'm really digging it. I'm loving it. I, I, I think, I don't think it had the initial wow impact as the first game did because the first like. 15 minutes of the last of us i think is phenomenal it is it is sort of the thing where you can look at it and think like oh man games can be very different than what we thought they could be and this game is going in different places and i think it's really torturing a lot of the characters we know and love but i'm really digging it so far i wish it remained as open as it was in a couple early chapters it feels like it's getting a little more linear uh, Jeff, I know you really liked it, so I'm yeah, I'm gonna I'm I'm excited to see where it goes, and I'm just happy to like be able to sit down and enjoy a game now. And my escape from the world of the pandemic is basically a game that's set ten years from now, after things go really bad for us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not exactly an escape as it is. Like, yeah. let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. <laughs> just go, go with it. 
Yeah. Um, well, uh, I have talked with Jeff about uh, Last of Us Part Two. Uh, on DLC and culturally relevant podcasts, it's kind of we cross posted the audio there. So if you want to listen to us talk in depth about it, and also I did a YouTube review of Last of Us Part Two as well. But I do want to mention th- that uh, mm-hmm. I've seen this very upsetting trend happen online, and Neil Druckmann, the creator of Last of Us, um, posted about it. And it, people are harassing other people who've been involved in making the game, uh, which. Is, is really upsetting. It actually reminded me a lot of, of another instance in which this occurred, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, the hatred for Skylar White from Breaking Bad. Oh, man. I don't know if you guys remember that, but like, yeah, she, yeah. she was uh, heavily harassed. She wrote about it, I think, in the New York Times. Um, uh, people could not distinguish between the character that this actress played and the character. Uh, I'm sorry, and the actor, I should say. Uh, they, they, couldn't, they thought that they were the same person, basically. <laughs> And the same thing is happening to the last or of us part two. Is it? I wonder. I really wonder about that. Is it not distinguishing between the character and the actor, or is it a complete misunderstanding of what an actor does? Yeah, is it I, I think assuming a lot of that an actor, actor is just making just wanders on onto, onto the <laughs> set and says whatever they want and right. decides where the character goes? You know, I'm curious. That, I'm, it, yeah. What? Yeah. What is it? Because be, like we we can only spec. Oh, the three of us can only speculate as to what these people's frame of mind is because. We, I don't think we could ever imagine harassing someone involved in making something. Yeah, um, is it is it mere belligerence or is it profound stupidity as well as belligerence? Right, it's, uh, well, because belligerence is just I'm going to shotgun my my hate at anybody that'll listen, which I kind of I can kind of understand. I think yeah. is is stupid and vile. Yeah. It's repugnant, but it is not. It is not lo- logically unsound. You know, it is not. It is. There's no. There's no. inherent fallacy there in in logically right but the idea of like you did the voice for a character in last of us therefore you ruined the game makes zero sense it makes zero sense like if that's actually their position where hey why did you say those things in that game I'm genuinely curious if it's a, th- a thought of, oh, you could have said whatever you wanted and they would have put it in the game. Yeah. yeah. Or so they, they would have motion captured the reality you were speaking. You know, that's how it works, right? Yeah. I, I, I don't I don't know. To provide some more context, I mean, I'm not going to reveal any of the shocking events of The Last of Us Part Two, but suffice to say, they took some big swings with this one. Um, they took some that's big... A bad pun. They, they made some big... They, wow. They took some big chances with this one. <laughs> um, nice, nicely done, Jeff. Uh, I, I and, will say that that first big, big chance, I, I didn't find it too surprising, but I'm hoping the game surprises me. Sure. Right, right. And, and so they took some big chances with, like, they, they didn't adhere to, like, conventional, you know, uh, macho video game making uh, templates for the, uh, for the game. And Neil Druckmann, the creator of the game, um, tweeted on July 5th, Quote, you can love or hate the game and share your thoughts about it. Unfortunately, too many of the messages I've been getting are vile, hateful, and violent. Here's just a handful of them. Um, and then he kind of screenshots some of the messages. Uh, and, and he also says, like, despite all this, if somehow the Lord gave me a second chance to make this game, I'd do it all over again, end quote. And and basically what, what has happened, right, is people feel possessiveness over the characters of the first game. They feel possessiveness that 
in their opinion, supersedes the creator of the characters, right? They think like they know right. better than what the creator of the characters. And th- this um, goes back to everything: Star Wars, Star Trek, <laughs> yes. anything that has generated a fandom. You know, this is it. Right. But this the fans, the fans feel like they know more. They they know better, right. basically. And and Jeff, I think another part of like why they're lashing out at both Neil Druckmann and also the actress who plays one of the main characters in Last of Us Part Two is. There's this anger that these people have about what has happened in the game, and they have nowhere to put that anger, right? They, they, they don't know how to channel that anger. It's very unhealthy I to have it, anger I at think all, it's the, right? I think it's the uh-huh. inverse. I think for once, they actually do know where to channel that anger. They, <laughs> we are in a... We are in, well, we are in a society now yeah, yeah. where you have unfettered access to the names on the screen. Like, you have a one-to-one disintermediated point of contact with every single person's name on that screen. Mm-hmm. So I, it's not that I don't think it's, I don't know where to put my anger. It's I have anger and look, yeah. I can reach out to the exact people whose names I see on the screen. Yeah. When and, I say and, they don't know, I meant like they don't know where to put their anger in a way that's like productive or constructive right, for right, society right. or anything like right. that. So well, they yeah, reach out to the most proximate thing they can think of, which is, the the voices who are you know playing these characters or or the guy who wrote the script and it's like these this is they're just grasping at straws for something to be angry at and it's very upsetting to see it's very upsetting to see so I, yeah we talked about this on DLC this week uh, the, the episode just came out uh, yesterday and um, you know we talked about it at length and I don't want to repeat myself uh, but I do think there is there is a way to look at this that is a little bit optimistic in the sense that, I mean, it is vile. Don't get me wrong. It is repugnant on every level, but it only is born of the fact that people were invested in fictional characters and Druckmann's goal with the first last of us is to get you to care about these characters, these digital creations. These were never human beings. I mean, it's one thing to care about, an actor on a movie screen who looks like a human being because they're, they are a human being. And it's another thing to care about digital bits that were created by a computer. Yeah. And I think but, it's, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a good thing that people cared about those characters. Now, I think that is obviously, a wildly optimistic take, but you know, well, uh, it's a silver going. lining to a very dark cloud, but <laughs> yes, by, by the but way, it, that, is, only that born, is the title of Jeff's biography. Like, well, <laughs> it is only born of, it is only born of of passion, and we have to figure yes. out, I think, how people how to educate people about yeah. the difference between caring and ownership and being part of a community, and like striking out and and being hateful. It, it is it is part of the same feeling, and on one in one sense. We, I say we as people that create things, but any company, any creator who is attempting to to generate a community and have people feel like they're part of a thing wants that. Right. 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 They want that that level of passion and investment. It, it, but somehow it turns ugly and they that ownership, that feeling of ownership becomes a thing. And I, you know, I brought this up on DLC, but I, I wonder what you guys think that I there is proof to these people that screaming loudly gets you things. The Snyder Cut, mm-hmm. the, um, you know. Sonic uh, the Hedgehog. 
Sonic the a million. We, there's a lot of examples now. We just had. I brought this up on DLC as well. We just had uh, EA Play. They had, you know, Electronic Arts had their big showcase. Their big mic drop, one more thing announcement at the end of it was the franchise Skate is coming back. Why? Because we read your comments. Right. right? That's right. what they said. We read your comments. It's coming back. So it, it it is a message that is being heard by these people. And when they lash out, and listen, I'm not trying to defend them. Believe me. I've been on the... I've been on an end of it. I nowhere near what Laura Bailey has ex experienced, but I have experienced it, and it is unpleasant to the extreme. It is mm -hmm. depressing. It is world altering. You you just you go down a deep dark hole. Yeah, I will so say I'm not there, defending there's a difference it, between listening to your fans, which you know that's again going back to Star Trek and going back to it is empowering yeah, them, not just listening to them. It's empowering them. Mm -hmm, You're saying, mm -hmm. hey, you have the power. Mm -hmm. You made this happen. You did it. And then they go, oh, I have the power. Right, right. It really it, depends it, on who you listen to and what you take away from what they're saying. And yeah, I my biggest worry is like the more hateful sides and the more like aggressive bands, like the Mass Effect thing still still irks me because of how people, how um, they responded to it, how the developers went and changed an ending to a game because people were mad. Yeah. And yeah, now it, it feels like it's just getting worse and worse. I'm not sure where it's going to go after this. Here, my reaction to what you said, Jeff, is you're saying like, oh, the passion is, that's at least one thing that's good. This is like the opening scene of Seven, right? With, uh, <laughs> uh, they show up in this murder scene and one of the characters says to Morgan Freeman's detective, um, it's a crime of passion. Yeah. And Morgan Freeman says, it, you know? Morgan Freeman says, yeah, just look at all that passion on that wall. You know, like he's he's very dismissive of the idea, which uh, I as also are you, as, as I, are as you. Am I. Right. <laughs> but um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think you're categorizing what I'm saying accurately. I'm not saying, hey, they're at least they're passionate. <laughs> I'm saying that what the creators wanted and always want is to elicit a connection and a feeling of ownership, and that that is becoming it is becoming an ugly thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, because what did Neil Druckmann want more than anything in that first game for you to feel something for you to feel some right. passionate about these characters? And what did he want from this game to feel have these moments hit you with a wallop? They did. The, the way people are reacting is ugly and and vile and unacceptable, but it is born of an effective dramatic turn it is born of good art like the art itself did what it was trying to do i'm not saying the passion is good the way you're kind of saying i'm saying it i'm saying that it it only happens when the art is doing what it intended to do uh i i don't necessarily dispute that but i'm just i think i'm overall much more pessimistic about this than you and i yeah, think that yeah. this needs to and be by this you mean everything <laughs> yeah every that's correct that's i correct. mean but the i think world this has proven that to be the case <laughs> yeah but i, I think am this... not listen i am not i don't have a rosy outlook on twitter or 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 <laughs> mm -hmm. the internet yeah I think it's pretty clear all of it was a mistake. And I think the genie <laughs> is out of the bottle. I don't think we get that genie back in the bottle. I don't know. I think the the only respite is for people who create things to not engage in listening, right? Yeah. And that's and, not and, fun. And that's and not also, effect. And also for the people who are basically part of this toxic fandom mm -hmm. uh, to not be empowered, to be stamped out 
in as forceful a way as humanly possible. Explain uh, to me how that is accomplished. Well, I mean, uh, for one thing, uh, these, you know, what, what they're already doing, which is like the company's coming out against these people, right? Like the company has public made public statements. They can design um, how they, uh, you know, I, I, I guess like the, the, the horse is already out of the barn on the social media of things like Twitter. It's, it's getting better, but like mm-hmm. social media has not been designed to prevent uh, abuse and harassment, right? It has been designed to let those things run free. And I think people are finally wising up to that and are hopefully um, uh, aware of that and uh, in the future will be designing things to prevent that from happening uh, or at least keeping an eye on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's not like, hey, Jeff, here's a solution. It's done. Yeah. You know, like, it's like, it's just like, but, you know, I, I'm just, I just see this as a, as a complete total loss, like mm-hmm. in terms of, I don't, I don't see any upside to it. I don't see it as a, well, at least they made the connection. It's like, there's nothing good about this. <laughs> yeah. Thing. Yeah. I mean, so, we've been designing things to be frictionless. I feel like that has been the goal of tech and networks forever. Right. Like if, if yeah. it's easier, it's better. Right. If it's more easy for people to use, that's true. I think generally that is the case, except for like, we are bad at being social despite being social creatures. Like we don't, we don't know how to parse too much information. Uh, you have players who don't have, I don't know, maybe the emotional intelligence to really compute what is happening and how to process those emotions. So they lash out and it's so easy to lash out. And that's the biggest problem. It's so easy. It's so easy and you could do it anonymously, but you'll even do it with your own name because there are so few consequences today. Yeah, and we and, and I guess I'm saying like you know whatever we can do to make the consequences higher, uh, we should. But anyway. I, I I I feel like you're painting me into a position of being <laughs> like this isn't such a big deal, but that is not what I'm saying. All right, uh, not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Druckmann and Naughty Dog knew exactly what they were making. There, this is not. There's no way they did not, they weren't aware of the thing they were making. The response has been probably disproportionate to what they expected and uglier and more vile. And I am not discounting that at all. I have experienced it firsthand, you know, in a much, much reduced form. But I had interactions with uh, Druckmann himself. And I said to him, hey, if I'm experiencing this, I can't imagine what you guys are experiencing. Right. And that's the case, right? They knew the game that they were making and they made it anyway. It's a bold artistic choice and one I applaud. I think you they took you talk about big swings, big chances. They did not they were not unaware of the emotional buttons they were pushing. They did that on purpose. That's the goal is to make you feel, make you angry, make you upset. That was what the game was trying to do. So in a sense, it, I mean, that is why I am so impressed with it as a, as a game. It, I think it's a masterwork because it's trying to do something that video games, by and large, don't. And I think it, it's, it's a triumph in that sense. And, and again, I'm not defending or trying to, be, to reduce the awfulness of what's happening by any stretch. So please don't put me in that position. All right. Uh, not trying to uh, imply that you uh, condone any of this stuff at all, um, but uh, just trying to make my position clear on it, at least. So in any case, that is The Last of Us Part Two. It is out right now. Check out my conversation with Jeff, which is probably uh, about as contentious as what you just heard on the, <laughs> yeah. D- on the DLC podcast. Uh, and culturally relevant as well. And uh, also my review is up on YouTube. Devendra, how, how many hours are you into this game? 
I think I'm about 10 hours in right now. Um, I'm definitely finding myself through some sequences. I am just running through things. And that <laughs> seems to be the best option because, uh, you know, the first game did not control that well. And I feel like I'm having weird, dumb issues with this one, too. But, uh, man, do I love these characters. So I'm going to keep going. All right. Well, last week after we recorded our podcast, and Jeff and Dindra, my guess is you've had these moments as well. Um, we finished recording the podcast in which we discussed at some length the Christopher Nolan chair ban, alleged chair ban, like he theoretically didn't allow chairs on set. And then the day after, uh, his team had to come out with a statement about it. And so I was like, oh, well, that stinks that we just recorded that whole segment. And now it's instantly outdated. But I guess we're used to that here on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, the next day on IndieWire, uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, team came out with a statement about it. Uh, spokesperson Kelly Bush Novak uh, said, For the record, the only things banned from Christopher Nolan's sets are cell phones, not always successfully, and smoking, very successfully. The chairs that Anne Hathaway was referring to are the director's chairs clustered around the video monitor, allocated on the basis of hierarchy, not physical need. Chris chooses not to use his, but has never banned chairs from the set. Cast and crew can sit whenever and wherever they need, and they frequently do, end quote. So, sit gate uh, is a closed <laughs> case, evidently. Is it, is it though? Is it? Uh, because, I mean, oh. uh, why would she make that statement? Well, anyway. Yeah. He's, he's she, I think she really missed an opportunity uh, <laughs> by saying that, uh, by not saying Christopher Nolan is famous for getting asses in seats. Mm. So, uh, she didn't have the she didn't go to the Jeff Kanata School of Limerick writing, unfortunately. Hey, um, wasn't a limerick. Uh, well, I'm just saying, like that's that's the kind of uh, logic that you would use in your limerick, you know. So, uh, by the anyway. way, by the way, I am opening the School of Limerick writing, and everybody is welcome. The tuition is very high, as well as well they, as well it should be, as well it should be. Um, anyway, wow, what a weird, uh, what a weird little online episode. You know, speaking of online episodes with the Neil Druckmann and everything, <laughs> wow, that was a weird thing that we spent like a good day or two on Twitter talking about. That, that was a good example too of how Twitter can just turn nothing <laughs> into something? Question yeah. mark. Yeah, but we yeah. all and almost always does. It. Yeah, yeah, man. Yep, yep. Well, speaking of uh, turning nothing into something. Quibi, uh, at least that's a nice. service that tries to do this. Uh, and I just, you know, we don't usually talk that much about film news on this podcast anymore because uh, you can get a really healthy dose of film news on Slash Film Daily at daily.slashfilm.com. But Benjamin Wallace wrote an amazing piece over at vulture.com that was published today. Everyone's been talking about it. My guess is this thing has like a million views at this point. The headline of the piece is, Is Anyone Watching Quibi? The streaming platform raised $1.75 billion and secured a roster of A-list talent, but it can't get audiences to notice. Now, Jeff, you have not read this piece, but th this is one of the most incredible pieces that I've read this year. Yeah. And I'm excited to read it now. I, I would <laughs> like, to, I would to, like to read for you two paragraphs from this piece that... I I think, you know, and I have a tweet right now that has a couple thousand likes in which I basically say, one day in the future, when no one asks me how Quibi died, this is the paragraph I'm going to show them. <laughs> um, and there is a paragraph in here that is just, it's so perfect. It, it's just like, it's so beautiful. I, chef's kiss, uh, Antonio Banderas leaning back in his chair. Like, I'm just like, Mwah. like, this is amazing. Okay. Here's the, here's the paragraph. Uh, quote, Katzenberg is on his, Katzenberg, who's the founder of Quibi, 
is on his phone all the time, but he's also among the moguls of his generation who have their emails printed out and vertically folded for some reason by an assistant. In enthusing about what a show could mean for Quibi, Katzenberg repeatedly invoked the same handful of musty touchstones. America's Funniest Home Videos, Siskel and Ebert, and Jane Fonda's exercise tapes. When Gal Gadot came to the offices and delivered an impassioned speech about wanting to elevate the voices of girls and women, Katzenberg wondered aloud whether she might become the new Jane Fonda and do a workout series for Quibi. Apparently, her face fell, says a person briefed on the meeting. <laughs> this is just... Oh, man. Can, can, can just, I tell you guys a Katzenberg story, by the way? Because uh, I, I chat with them at CES. And let me tell you... This piece goes into like how crazy Quibi's whole situation is, right? Like how big the offices are and like how much do they invest in it. Uh, as I was walking up to him um, for, the, for the interview, people were just running around everywhere. Like assistants, a uh, couple of people. It seemed like, oh man, something serious is going on. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg lost his jacket. And <laughs> there were at least like five different people running around like, where's the jacket where's the jacket is it in this room do you, do you leave it here i don't know i don't know and they were getting increasingly flustered so the, by the time i sat down with them i was like uh i hear you guys are having a jacket situation huh and yeah it, it was hilarious and they're like, like we don't talk about that anymore there, there's a lot of energy being invested in this uh in this company in this, for in this jacket, seemingly yeah. minor things yeah uh there's also sorry i actually read the wrong paragraph the paragraph i mentored was the one right before that where <laughs> Uh, he sa- It says, quote, people have wondered why Katzenberg and Whitman, uh, who I think is the CEO, in their late yeah. and early 60s respectively and not very active on social media would believe they have uniquely penetrating insight into the unacknowledged desires of young people. When I ask Whitman what TV shows she watches, she responds, I'm not sure I'd classify myself as an entertainment enthusiast. But are there any particular shows she likes? <laughs> Grant, she offered, on the History Channel. It's about President Grant, end quote. So that is yeah. who is running Quibi. Not a not an entertainment enthusiast. Yeah. My my favorite part is that when she has to explain what Grant is about because no one has heard of that thing. I mean, I've actually heard it's it's really good to be fair. But on the History Channel, it's about President Grant. You know what? It would make it better, Dave. What would make it better, Jeff? If it was less than 10 minutes long and you could change the aspect ratio anytime you wanted. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That would make it better. Anyway, this piece is amazing. It goes into all the reasons why things are going badly. I, I'll just say on a personal level, in my opinion, really, it's the price. Like if uh, I think uh, Kyle Buchanan from New York Times put it well today, he basically said like, why they're basically charging you more and giving you less right, than other services. They're charging you more than Disney Plus cost. They're giving you less both in terms of the fact that it's bite-sized content and the fact that they don't have as much content. Um, yeah. And it's like, why Why would anyone pay for that? that that's a problem. You know, if, if yeah. this was like $2 a month, $3 a month, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna pay $2 just to see like Rachel Brosnahan I, with a golden I, I arm. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think even if this thing were free, because we've seen a lot of these mobile video services come and go that were completely free and die. That's the problem is like, Nothing about yeah. Quibi works. It's the price. It's the content. It's the why of it. It's the what of it. It's simple yeah. things that should have been there from the start. Like, man, my review that I wrote in Gadget is probably one of the favorite, like my favorite things I've written in the past few years because it was pure channeling rage <laughs> at this stupid, stupid waste of two, nearly $2 billion. And actually they raised it, more money. So it's over $2 billion now. It, it really does seem like it's a solution searching for a problem. 
yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't understand why anybody would pay for this other than, I mean, I guess if there was some must watch thing, I guess, but I mean, it, it's competitors, YouTube, right? It's a free thing that everybody already has on their phone. I, I don't, I, I mean, don't forget about YouTube, TikTok, you know? Yeah. What was interesting too about this was, uh, he says, quote, uh, there's a piece here, uh, in, in the article, um, Katzenberg and Whitman point out they stocked the Quibi offices with young employees who are in the demographic they're trying to reach, but there was an incredible lack of knowledge of the audience and dismissiveness of the audience, (laughs) another ex-Quibbite says. A thing Jeffrey always says is, I'm not a child or mother, but I made movies children and mothers loved. I know millennials better than millennials. Katzenberg had at times uh, been well-served by his intuition, and he remained convinced of his acuity. I say, where's your data, Whitman says of their contrasting styles. He says, there is none. You just have to go with your gut, end quote. That is a very a Col- like Colbert Report-esque response about yeah, going with the Yeah, very Trumpian. Yeah, very, yeah. very Trumpian. And uh, on the one hand, uh, I can kind of uh, understand and empathize with this point of view in the sense that this guy, uh, I mean, he was responsible for movies like, what, The Little Mermaid and um, uh, what else? Like Lion King? Was he there when he did Lion King? Uh, Beauty and the Beast, like Little the Mermaid, 90s. and Lion King. Yeah, right? 90s Disney, yeah. And so, you know, he again, he, 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 as he says, he's not a mom, he's not a, a child, but he's like, he knew what they wanted. Uh, but the problem is, and, and and he made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars as an individual. He made hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. Um, but the problem is that when you are used to that mindset of like, hey, I, I just did what I thought was best and I made hundreds of millions of dollars. You think that, therefore, you know what other people don't, right? And that people will tell you you're wrong, uh, but that you're still right. And I think that his... The limits of his acuity have been reached at this uh-huh, point, right? Uh-huh. He doesn't understand I mean, what TikTok is. He's not even on Twitter, as far as I can tell. Right? I, so I it's told like, you guys this, like after I got out of CS, like I sat down with these two people, and they had no clue what they were doing. <laughs> like I asked them, point, I, I told them, like, so who will watch this? And they they believe ba- basically based on their experience and Jeffrey Katzenberg saying, um, not really saying, but kind of implying, like, listen. I'm a very rich man. I have made a lot of money on entertainment. I know entertainment. Let me show you entertainment. And it's basically this. I just also want to throw a quick shout out to a tiny little app that I actually um, tried out a couple weeks ago called What If I. It's uh, one word, What If I. I wrote about it in Gadget. But it is it is the Quibi idea. Um it is mobile video. It's like, um, but it's multiple choice mobile video, and it kind of rules. It's um, it's these short movies where, um, sort of like the Bandersnatch thing, where you have points where you can make different choices. You can do that. You can do it as a party. Um, they have like a couple movies now, and there are a ton of endings to it. And to me, that like that's it. That's what Quibi should have done is give us something new and interesting. Like, I want to watch these movies on my phone because it's fun to watch a multiple choice thing, you know, on a portable screen. It is not fun to force me to do whatever the hell Quibi is doing. Uh, what is the name of this app again? I'm trying it's, to Google uh, it. I can't find it. It's called this. What If I, one word, What If I. I read, There wasn't really was much coverage, but they got uh, funding from Andreessen Horowitz. So, like, they're see, really yeah. small. They got, like, $10 million in funding compared to Quibi's $2 billion. But the, like, two movies I've seen on this thing are 
vastly better than anything on Quibi. It's amazing. That's interesting. That's interesting. So it's what if I, you can find it at whatifi.com. Yes, it's free for now, but you can party up with people and basically have like a party following along a multi, you know, a multiple choice movie adventure, which I think is kind of fun. All right. Well, some options better than Quibi out there. We'll see how long this service can survive. Uh, I, my subscription ran out and I am not re-upping. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I think I think that's true of many of us. Uh, but yeah, uh, some thoughts on Quibi. Check out this piece in Vulture. It is amazing. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you're probably experiencing a bit of stress right now. And I've been using CBD to help me deal with that, specifically Feels, which is premium CBD that's delivered directly to your doorstep. It's naturally a way to reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. Uh, Back when we were traveling, I would often take it uh, when I went to the airport. But these days, it's also a helpful thing when uh, the news just makes me feel kind of overwhelmed or I just need help sleeping. Feels is easy to take. You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you'll feel the difference almost immediately. It's very quick. Um, They offer real human support with a CBD hotline and ways to, you know, tell you how much to take. Uh, and I think the best thing is that it just helps you feel better naturally. You've got a variety of options to choose from when it comes to sizes and dosage. So join the Feels community today to get it delivered directly to your doorstep. You'll save money and you can cancel at any time. And I'm just going to read this from Feels' website. Representations regarding the efficacy and safety of Feels have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA only evaluates drugs and foods, not supplements like this product. It's not intended to diagnose, prevent, treat, or cure any disease. Feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash filmcast, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash filmcast to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash filmcast. All right, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Jeff, let's start with you. Let's get some lighthearted stuff on the podcast. What have you been watching? (laughs) Lighthearted indeed. Yeah. Uh, I have been watching The Floor is Lava Yes, on Netflix. Well, I'm going to put this out there, Jeff. It's actually, I believe, called Floor the, is Floor Lava. Floor is Lava, Floor yes. Is, the, there's no the. Cut out no, the the. Cleaner that way. I, I added the the back in because it deserves it. <laughs> the Floor is. Not just a Floor is Lava. Not just Floor is Lava. This is the floor is lava. Well, here's why I like the fact that it's called floor is lava. It's because uh, the aesthetic of the show is very stripped down and minimalist overall, I think. Uh, The presentation, I think, is very, very um, no frills. And I think the fact that it's called floor is lava reinforces that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Here's Here's what I think about floor is lava. Yeah. I think this is one of the very few quantum television shows <laughs> this is the schrodinger's cat of television shows it is at the same time <laughs> in two completely different states uh-huh it is at the same time utterly brilliant and revolutionary and complete garbage <laughs> at the same time yeah yeah i'm throughout, with you i'm with you throughout it is an completely inspired, brilliant thing that is also nearly unwatchably bad. 
You know what, Jeff? I I honestly had this thought while I was watching the show. Is man, Jeff Kanata would kill at this hosting gig. Yeah, uh, because dude. you would you would do the puns, but without as much. Uh, you would you would be less annoying than the host of that show. The the thing that completely ruins this show, among many things, <laughs> <laughs> is the fact that it is so produced. Right, the genius of Flores Lava is twofold. Firstly, everybody gets it. Everybody gets it. Everybody's played that as a kid. It is a completely universally understood idea of don't touch the ground, don't touch the ground. Okay, totally get that. Immediately, you go, yeah, I played that as a kid. Oh, we're doing that on a scale that is adult sized and intense, dude. <laughs> That just it just clicks. It just makes sense. It's just like yes. The second thing that is genius about this show is we've seen a number of obstacle course shows, um, American Ninja, um, Wipeout. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, this show innovates by making the course open world. It's the open world video game of. <laughs> Of it's the Grand Theft Auto of, <laughs> yes. of uh, is obstacle course of game shows. It is that revolutionary. As Re Grand Theft Auto 3 completely changed video games because it went, oh, hey, what if you just could go around anywhere? So, too, does Flores Lava <laughs> to the obstacle course game show format because the strategy of where to go, what to do, the fact that there's like switches and things to ch change the, the layout of the course Utterly brilliant, utterly brilliant, because you go, well, what, what would I do? Where would I go? But at the same time, in its quantum state of being also shit, just pure <laughs> stinky shit, what, sh <laughs> what ruins it is that it's way overproduced, edited all to hell. There's pickups and one-liners and clearly a, a group of writers who are shouting things to the players to then say back uh, to pick up like none of this show feels authentic at all and all you want from this show is authenticity all i want from this premise is set up a camera and do not edit it show me how these people move through this place but clearly there are so many rules and reality show producer interferences constantly happening where for some reason, I guess people can't double back. Or if you go this way, another player has to go the other way. It's like no one actually gets to do the strategy that seems the smartest. They all are bound by unnamed tacit constraints that we are just unaware of. And the, all of the banter and one-liners and bullshit completely breaks and ruins this otherwise very entertaining premise, which could have been, which could have been so great. Just set up a camera and let me watch these people try to do this. That would be fun to watch. Okay. That brings me to my bigger point. That was all a prelude. Creed to get is, to this that, point. that was the preamble to yes. the full body of the argument here. We are about to get to the most insane element of this show. Okay, you could be one of many things you're, you're thinking. You're there are a lot of them. Yes. There are a lot of them. But to me, this is head and shoulders above everything else about Flores Lava. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The show, <laughs> the show treats 
someone falling into red colored water <laughs> as if they are literally falling into lava. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is, we this are, is the brilliance dead. of the show. This is, we yeah. are, Why it is this amazing. is the quantum state because yes. it's completely stupid and utterly brilliant at the same time. The, the, we are, we are to assume the conceit <laughs> that when a person leaps at something and grabs at it and slides in, we are witnessing their body consumed by molten fire. <laughs> that they are, we are watching their death in front of us. We are, the show treats the moment of them slipping into the lava as a horrific act of witnessing the most unimaginably graphic death you have ever seen. We are literally, their body, there were moments where I was watching, I was like, that's the moment where they died. <laughs> that, that moment, they're still grasping on with their upper half, but their bottom half, we are led to believe, is seared into non-existence. <laughs> Listen, it's right in the title, Jeff. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> And but they treat it. Everybody, the the rest of the team mourns the loss of their player. We never see they go, they go under the lava. Yeah, they're, they, they're like they suck through. Yeah, some sort it's of unclear. Tube. Like I don't know. Do they stop the proceedings and then get the person out? But what's great about it is, <laughs> oh, they, they stop they, the proceedings constantly in this show. I guarantee it. The show is so fake it is completely produced every stack second of that show well, let me tell I'm you sure about they're... game shows jeff in general <laughs> oh i've been on enough to know that but 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 most game shows you actually are competing yeah this yeah, yeah. i guarantee you these people were told what direction to go <laughs> they're told what to attempt what to what to say it is such horseshit, and it could have been great <laughs> well but i thought but it is great though right jeff it is great yeah and horseshit at the same time. <laughs> the cat is both alive and dead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think that is actually a faithful recreation of the game because, uh, listen, it's fun when you're a kid and then you destroy all your furniture and then, you know, then you have to sit on it after. So, okay. Yeah. Dave, you face the consequences of it. Yeah. Have you both watched this or just, you just, I have I've both watched, watched Flora's Lava okay. on Netflix. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Tell me something. Now, I don't. I don't mean to make light of this, uh -huh, uh -huh. and I'll be super honest. I was very high when I watched this wow. first episode. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is there an in memoriam at the end of the first episode? <laughs> I, I I vaguely remember that, yeah. There is an in memoriam at the end of an episode You gotta go with the concept, show. Man. Come on. A fake show where we are led to believe people are being consumed by molten lava. Well, Jeff, come on. I mean, you have created, you, you know, you have created things that are seemingly of uh, of little consequence before. I'm not saying that's the bulk of yeah. your work or anything. Je but, Jeff, you know, Jeff, and I you thought might, you might were, offer an in memoriam at the end of one of those things. I feel like Jeff is very into real world building, you know, like taking a, a concept to its logical end. And I feel like this show has done that. It has turned a very stupid but fun kids game into a very stupid but fun TV show. I guess I, 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 <laughs> I saw the, we are led to believe these people are plummeting to their deaths yes, inside a, they are. And then there's an in memoriam. Then there's an in memoriam at the end. I, I, I don't want to make light of what I guess is a legitimate person <laughs> that died on the crew, but I also felt like there's a reading for, of this that is, I don't know. Maybe listen, I shouldn't have brought that Jeff, up. But on, that this, seems on this podcast, we respect the people who die in lava. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, okay. and, and also people related to those people and people related yes. to the people who filmed yes. those people. Um, but, uh, that, that, uh, that is the weirdest complaint out of all of them, Jeff. <laughs> I was with you until that last bit there. But don't um, you think that that's, it just, it just, it's, it's dissonant. It's very, it's a very strange, I get, I get the idea of wanting to honor someone if they actually died, but you're, I don't know. Okay. I'll let this one go. What, okay. what is your, what are your takes on the show? Uh, slightly less negative than yours. I, I, I think would it's say. fine. It's a fun thing to watch with kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's completely enjoyable. It is perfect. It is for, completely enjoyable. It is perfect for quarantine, in my opinion. It is of it no is not consequence. Completely enjoyable. It is awful, <laughs> and also great. It is fun. It is of no consequence. Uh, I I had a great time with it. I I was expecting to hate it, and I found my. Here's what I love about the show. Okay. Um. First of all, the thing that you said about like every them treating the people dying in the lava as bad. I actually think that's that's a great part of it. It's like very, it brings out the childlike wonder, you know, which I appreciate. And I also like the but fact I that I couldn't help but I couldn't help but think through the ramification because <laughs> if we are if if the if the like let's take your given circumstances as truth, the way the players then move on for again, maybe my brain was not in the right place to see this show, but. The the way that they move on from that and I don't know. Go ahead, go ahead, Dave. I don't mean yeah, to interrupt. No, I'm sorry. no, it's cool. Um, you, clearly, this is you're more passionate about this. We, we than need the more Jeff reviews while high. Clearly, um, <laughs> clearly. Uh, yeah. Um, so I like that. But what I also like is the fact that it's very difficult to predict who is going to win. Like, because I I watched the first episode and I'm like, oh, all those people who look like personal trainers are going to win for sure. Like those guys who are super jacked, they're going to win. And I was, they did not win. And I was like, oh my gosh. And it, like, it, it takes more than just. But there's no universe in which any of that was authentic. It takes more than just brawn to win this game, Jeff. You got to have ingenuity, <laughs> teamwork, and a little bit of luck. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you didn't uh, enjoy it quite as much as us. Did but... you Did you believe for any second that any of the people were attempting to employ a strategy that would best ensure their victory. Uh, I did. I did. I did so here's the, here's the other thing that, that went through my head when I was watching this show. How does one, how does one design this course to be balanced, right? How, how do you make sure? Because if you design this course and it is so easy that every team gets every player through it, you failed. If you design this course so that it is so difficult that none of the players make it, none of the teams get there, you failed. If you make it so that it always has the same number of people getting through, you failed. How do you create a course that is dynamic enough to be just in that sweet spot of difficulty level where... Some people do well, some people don't. The answer? It's all bullshit. <laughs> uh, that's one, certainly one possibility, or it is a work of staggering genius. Right? <laughs> it's I mean, in the it's, quantum state of both, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, I feel like you sound angry because you didn't pitch this idea to Netflix when clearly oh, you have dude, a I have, yeah. I have pitches for Duck Duck Goose, <laughs> for... Uh, for Just go, uh, go. The world is your oyster. Heads up, seven up. I got my... Uh, 
I got my Red Rover, Red Rover pitch going on. I'm ready. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. The other thing that's weird about this show, Dave, <laughs> is they, they tri the guy, the host guy, maybe I'm just so out of the loop. I don't know who this guy is, but they, he, they treat like meeting him as a big deal, right? <laughs> don't they? Yeah, dude. Um, you know who he is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is he a, yeah. Is he a this guy? is amazing. This Rutledge, is Rutledge Wood has over 200,000 followers on Twitter, dude. He's, he's, who is he? He's a big deal. Come he's on. A, he, he's a big deal, man. Okay. Big All right. Deal. All right. I guess I'm just not aware. I'm I mean, just, I, I, mean I wouldn't cool. say he's a big deal. Like, you know, he's not a what, big who, deal. Is he a comic? Uh, okay. According to his Wikipedia page, he is an auto racing analyst and TV show host. <laughs> He is one of the three hosts for History's Top Gear, along with Adam Ferrara oh, and Tanner Faust. He was the American uh, Top Gear, Gear guy. Okay. Yes. And you knew that before you started watching Floor is Lava? Um, I didn't know that until <laughs> literally 10 seconds ago when I read this Wikipedia page. Oh, well, good. I'm glad I have been shamed. <laughs> you, you know what, Jeff? You should work on your uh, Ring Around the Rosie pitch because <laughs> that game is about the plague, right? Right, and what a perfect yeah, time that's to bring good. it back. Bring it back, baby. I think I would. I think I would title that show, "We All Fall Down." Yes, <laughs> Jeff. Uh, I, I gotta say, I'm worried about you. <laughs> you should be, Dave. I'm, I'm living you. through a goddamn pandemic <laughs> with children. It is indeed very difficult. Yeah, <laughs> I, to, yeah. I, I, I had an edible and I watched Flora's Lava, and it was my only respite the entire week. Well, it sounds like it wasn't that much of a respite, to be honest. No, it wasn't. <laughs> There's no end. Jeff, you have to watch calming things when you're high. You know, another Not, thing that's great about yeah. Floor is Lava is... We all fall uh, down. We all fall down. They there don't we wear go. any, like, uh, helmets or pads or anything, so it's, like, very much... Uh... Anyway. <laughs> I, enjoy I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. That's Floor is Lava. It's on Netflix right now. And it broke Jeff's brain. Okay, yeah. um, I will throw out a few things real quick. Speaking of Netflix, there's a bunch of stuff on there that I watched. Uh, I, I I don't remember where we got this recommendation. I think someone emailed us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com or they might have tweeted at us. Um, but they recommended watching this show called Lennox Hill. Now, Lennox Hill is a documentary. Dvinger, did you know about this hospital? I think it's in New York, right? Uh, um, I've, he I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, um, so Lenox Hill is a documentary about a uh, hospital called Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, and it hit a few weeks ago, and I was just like, oh, well, uh, that is something I am not watching, because uh, I have a feeling it's not going to be super relevant to the things we're dealing with right now. Uh, also, um, like, you know, we're obviously dealing with a global pandemic, and I didn't necessarily want to watch a documentary about doctors dealing with things that aren't a pandemic. Um, because I'm already depressed enough by the actual things going on. But then they released a new episode that deals with the COVID situation, and so I uh, was recommended to check it out. I checked it out, and it is very good. Um, I uh, it, it gives you a look at what first responders, uh, what people on the front lines, what these essential workers are going through, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, so <laughs> I'm gonna... I do... I'm going to change the topic a little bit, but I'm going to tie it back. But basically, I do workout videos every other day now, right? Um, I'm doing. I, Produ I, you're producing them? No, I'm I'm exercising oh. to them, right? Oh, sorry. And I do workout videos, and uh, it's a way to stay fit. And using only body weight, you know, um, uh, I do like a one hour workout every other day. And I've done one of my workouts so much that I 
don't need the audio anymore. You know what I mean? Like I can just uh, put it on the iPad and then I can I can actually watch an entirely different thing, right? So I'm I'm being extremely efficient with my time. I'm doing my <laughs> workout and then watching a separate thing on my TV. Gotta right? love it, yeah. Um, that's great you you want to be in that world extremely efficient with my time (laughs) okay this is how dave survives the pandemic just like optimal efficiency what is so funny about that jeff what is so funny about that you 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 uh, just the, the the back slap on yourself of like uh, you committed this workout to, routine to memory to maintain optimal efficiency. <laughs> I can, um, it's true. I can binge watch my shows yes. and get my workout and in get, at the and same get my time. sweat on at Guilt the same free. time. Guilt free binge watching. Guilt, yeah. guilt free binge watching. Okay. Uh, all that said, the reason I brought that up was actually to be very serious. So I'm sorry for laughing through this. Um, but basically, uh, here here is how powerful Lennox Hill was. Was I had to stop my workout because I was weeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's never a good sign. Uh, it was I mean, a I guess it is a good sign. Your routine, you just couldn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I you couldn't, couldn't deal with. Couldn't that. finish those butt blasters. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, I'm not. I I uh, you know we're laughing because it's funny, but also uh, oh, but yeah, the, the the documentary is very good and. It was heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because the thing that's heartbreaking about it is <laughs> <laughs> just the idea of you doing burpees while the sort of horrors are of our world is going through. Oh my god! I'm dude. imagining Homer Simpson eating his lobster and yeah. crying, but also like saying, "Oh man, this is so good." And Dave is just like, "Pinchy oh, would have loved this." this so such a good workout, critiques. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> uh. Anyway, um. sounds good. No, it sounds like it sounds very powerful. I hope nobody working on the show is listening to this. Uh, no, episode. no, it sounds very intense. It was, it was very good. Okay, trying to bring it back to seriousness. Basically, um, you know, I don't know if I can. So maybe we should just skip over it. Uh, rather than disgrace this documentary any further. Uh, but the show is Lennox Hill. They have a COVID episode that's just out, and it's very, very good. And I would recommend you not be doing burpees while you watch it so that you can register the full emotional impact. I also, so it's, it is a New York hospital, right? And it's talking about how they're dealing with COVID. Um, as somebody who's living there and, you know, uh, following the daily news, it sounded like a hellscape. So I can imagine, Dave, that it was incredibly depressing i'm looking forward to watching it now and being the thing that's depressing the thing that's depressing about it is that um these people went like had great sacrifices right like many of them quarantined away from their families right and worked like Mm -hmm, 15 mm -hmm. 16 hour days and the least we can do to honor their sacrifices is to wear a mask and socially distance and millions of americans can't be bothered to do it. it's too it's too hard dave it's too hard yeah, and that is, that is what is heartbreaking is uh, the story that happens at Lenox Hill is going to be replicated at many hospitals around the country, and it is going to be entirely preventable. So anyway, uh, yep. so, sorry for all the laughter, but oh, uh, I've, I've been getting tweets from people who um, who live in Houston, which I believe has the largest amount of hospitals per capita, and they're they're all full now. Like yep. everything Boy. New York saw is going to. 
be repeated across the country because we are goddamn morons. So welcome. Yeah, welcome and, to and the to US. be fair, you know, part of it is also the the complete absence of uh, logical and coherent leadership as well. Sure, sure. Uh, That's all part of it. That's all yeah, part yeah. of it. But yeah, yeah. Also, we, which yeah. is which is there, which has been put there because we're morons. But anyway, yeah. Um, so yes, I, but point to me one country on the world that handled this better than we did. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, sorry about the laughter, uh, d- not to downplay the sacrifices these people made. The laughter is at me, just to be clear. It, it is at m- uh, oh, my definitely. stupidity for trying to watch <laughs> too many things at once. Um, be prime efficiency. <laughs> for my prime efficiency. Uh, speaking of Netflix, a couple other things I watched on there. Uh, Home Game is a new documentary series that's about weird sports that happen around the world, and it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, it's... It's it's not a thing that I would say like you got to go put down what you're doing and watch this you know but it's like oh this eh, that's kind of interesting like there's a sport in Kyrgyzstan where it's like uh kind of like uh football except uh you it's ride on a ho- you you oh, ride oh, on a oh, horse sorry. and you uh and the ball is a dead goat mm. you need to deposit a dead goat into the goal you know and it's like oh mm-hmm. okay that's interesting so like the whole goat or is it just like the head of a goat it's a whole dead goat. Mm. Um and Never there's other dynamic. Interesting, yeah. There's other interesting sports chronicled as well. Uh but yeah, it's a it's a kind of like a I watched <clears throat> yeah. I watched that first one. There's the first segment about that uh, that rugby yeah. sport, and I was like, that's enough for me. Yeah, kind that's of it's kind, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. It's like, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but you know, I don't necessarily feel compelled to finish it. Unsolved Mysteries is back. Man, that was the scariest show when I was a kid. Was it? Yeah. There was that. There were sightings. There were there were a couple of really really terrifying things back in the day. Robert Stack's narration was mm-hmm. the creepiest mm-hmm. thing. He was yeah from like ten year old me. That oh. theme music was perfect. Yeah. So terrifying. here's what distinguishes this unsolved mysteries from the previous one. Uh, first of all, no more Robert Stack, so that is a huge detriment to the new show. Um, but uh, rather than cover like three or four mysteries in one episode, <laughs> this one is just focuses on one mystery. Yeah. And what I like about this one is uh, it clearly is done with the involvement of the people involved in the situation. Like me- most of the mysteries are like a person vanished. That's that's what most of the mysteries are. Uh, or m- at least the, the two I watched was like that, and I read the synopses, and it seemed like pretty similar. Uh, there is like a paranormal UFO one. I was kind of thinking it would be more in that direction, but it's not. Um, but what's great about the show is that these people vanish and then it shows you the wreckage that a, a disappearance leaves in people's lives. And you, you see like, just cause a person vanished at a single point in time and like, it's not like they're, they're mm-hmm. the impact of their absence is felt for many years afterwards. And, uh, the show kind of depicts that in a really uh, compelling way by interviewing the people that are left behind. And, uh, so I, uh, I, I really like the fact that it kind of reckons with that and also is done with the participation of the people. Like it's interviewing these people. So clearly they, uh, in uh, like, supported right. this enterprise in some way which is such a fresh change of pace from something like let's say serial <laughs> where uh, you know the people involved <laughs> didn't ask to have their lives turned upside down for no reason basically yeah it's also um, international now where the original show was just us only so it's kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. like there are more mysteries to be solved around the world and it turns it turns it back on you. It's like, hey, do you know anything about this situation? And it asks you like, uh, that would, they always did that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That was 
That was carries over from the original. Right, right, always, no, no, if I, you know anything about any of these people you've seen, yeah, yeah. You, you know, call this number. Yeah, so they, that's it's the same thing here. And I, I'm curious what the effect will be because uh, we live in a much different, more connected age now when, than when the original came out. So uh, I watched a couple episodes and I'd say it's like a very solid entry into the true crime genre and it feels like a more compassionate version of true crime than I've seen in other places. So... That's Unsolved Mysteries. It's on Netflix as well. All right. Uh, let's leave it there in terms of what we've been watching. Uh, but yeah, that's what we've been watching. I've been watching a few things. On the, actually, all that stuff was from Netflix. So Lennox Hill, uh, Home Game, Unsolved Mysteries, and The Floor is Lava. Floor is Lava, Davis. No, the. Come on. I, I, I swallow the the. Sorry about that. <laughs> Before we move on, let's thank all the people who donated to the podcast. Thanks to Robert Kelly, Matthew Mankey, Bob Zamet. Uh, local from Seattle area, Michael Lucero. Lucero? Do you think that's Lucero or Lucero, guys? Could be Lucero. You don't know. Michael mm-hmm. Lucero slash Lucero, who donates on behalf of his wife Nancy Lucero slash Lucero. Um, thanks to Michael for that donation on behalf of Nancy, and also Charlie Kinross for the, his donation as well. Thank you so much. If you want to donate to the podcast, you can always go to PayPal.me slash Filmcast. That's PayPal.me slash the word Filmcast. Or go to SlashFilm.com, click on the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Never donate if it in any way causes you hardship. But uh, if you want to throw a few bucks our way, we'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you want to support us for free, the best way to do that is just take a few seconds, leave a star rating or a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Um, So check that out. Uh, But thanks to everyone who donated. We really appreciate it. And let's move on to our review of Hamilton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. The ten dollar found a father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being the self-starter daughter through your union. And the hope baby you That was from the trailer for Hamilton. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. The real life of one of America's foremost founding fathers and first secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton, captured live on Broadway from the Richard Rogers Theater with the original Broadway cast. Of course, uh, Hamilton is now available on Disney+. Plus. It, it's coming out a year and a half earlier than it was supposed to. It's supposed to be out like last next fall, I should say. But they, they pulled so crazy. up- Yeah, they pulled up the uh, release date because um, they're, they're not really running this musical that much anymore because of the pandemic. People aren't really going to musical theater right now. Or um, any theater. <laughs> or any theater, yeah. Uh, so before we get into this discussion, we should say- that we're probably going to spoil the whole musical. So if you haven't seen the musical, uh, and we're going to actually wanna... perform it from start to finish. <laughs> Ready? Here we go. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's based off of real life world events from this country's history, but uh, I think yeah. some people might still complain about spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled on Hamilton the musical, you should come back after you've uh, watched it on Disney Plus. But suffice to say, uh, I think it's safe to say we all really, really loved it and uh, recommend checking it out. Um, but, uh, yeah, 
That's spoilers for Hamilton starting right now. Okay. Devinder Hardwar, you actually saw this in your... Did you see the Richard Rogers Theater? I saw uh, the Richard Rogers. Yeah, so you saw I, it in uh, the theater in which it was filmed. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, and I didn't realize this at the time, uh, the only way I was actually able to get a ticket was because it was one of the showings without Lin-Manuel Miranda. It was his mm. understudy, mm. which was, you know, not, not great. And uh, I, I wish I had understood that at the time, but... It was still an amazing show. And I think I told you guys this when I first saw it. It was probably like 2015, I think. Um, It was the single, like one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And certainly the greatest thing I've ever seen on stage. And I'm not somebody, you know, I've seen a lot of stage productions. I don't look forward to them the way I do to movies. Um, It's just not like my tempo, like as a medium. And especially in New York, it's tough because it's, uh, it's expensive. Broadway is so expensive and, you know, putting down a ton of money onto a thing that you may or may not like. And, you know, by the time you know it's very good, tickets are like 200, 300 bucks a seat. I spent, um, I don't even remember. Let me just say over $350 per seat to see Hamilton. And that's not but You something... only needed the edge. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I need. <laughs> Man. Um... It was not, that's not something you could do multiple times a year for multiple shows. So I've always found Broadway stuff and especially like really um, the really popular stage stuff in New York to be really inaccessible. So yeah, I love the show. I wish it was more accessible. They did a good thing with the lotteries. Um, I didn't really. Man, I entered that lottery in LA every single day for five months. And that was something, you know, it's not much, but it was something because just the economics of Broadway and these shows makes it really tough to make it accessible. This movie, this like hybrid, because it's both a capture of of a performance, of a live performance, but they also shot like some uh, stuff on stage, like a quieter. Apparently they shot like over several days and there were tons of cameras involved. Like they they shot over three, they shot over three nights. Yeah. They used nine cameras and for 13 of the songs, they shot additional takes with, uh, like right on stage. Yeah. Like on stage, close up, steady cam, jibs, you know, so the the camera could get in there without blocking the audience. Yeah. Um, So yeah. And I have to say, I was sort of dreading this because I've seen, We've all seen the sort of like filmed TV versions of plays. They don't typically look good. They're not very dynamic. They often don't have many angles to choose from. The, you know, the camera work isn't very great. It's all very like blah and boring. And man, this version of Hamilton is just so perfect. Like it really gets you into the show. It shows you everything. Like it shows you the performances so well. It really does a great job of like, showing you the set and moving through the set you have so many angles and also views of the show that even in the best seats um you know in the theater which costs thousands of dollars you would not be able to see those specific things like there's some overhead work um i just i love this rendition of the show and yeah the show is still freaking amazing and honestly even more I think even more compelling and interesting now amidst everything we're dealing with amidst you know the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests against police violence and just the awareness of how people of color and especially black people in this country are being treated. Watching this movie of, you know, something about the white founding fathers, most of whom were slave owners, being portrayed by a black and brown audience, um, you know, people of color of all sorts, seeing them 
it's 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 just amazing to me. Like it floored me at the time. It's still incredible seeing sort of the um, the past of this country represented by the future. You know, by what we eventually are going to look like. It's something Lin Manuel Miranda has talked about before. Um, I think even in the undefeated documentary, um, not documentary, the undefeated like follow up to the the movie, you can go hear some more stuff from him and the cast members that's worth watching. If you watch this on Disney plus, um, it's such a powerful thing and the songs are so great. The lyrics are so good. The performances are phenomenal. It's still such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm glad more people have access to it. I feel like that's my main thing. It is one of the best things I've ever seen. And now finally everyone, or at least everybody who has Disney plus can see it. And yeah, that to me is a huge accomplishment. Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on Hamilton? The, yeah. Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my yeah. thoughts about Hamilton are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Jeff, let right. me say, this better be a damn good limerick. Like, All right. yeah, the, the All bar right. is very high. The wordplay bar <sighs> is so high for this one. All right. All right. I'll step up to the challenge. I, uh, I knew I had to bring it for Hamilton. <laughs> Here we go. Ready? <clears throat> What else can be said about Hamilton? Just play the film version and jam with them. It'll be on repeat till lockdown's complete because I'm quarantined with my fam till then. That's, That's okay. right. That's right. <laughs> Every word has impact in Hamilton, like being hit with a battering ram again. To explain in the form of a sports metaphor, it's like hitting a winning Grand Slam or 10. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying about Hamilton? I'll make sure I don't slip up or stammer when I tell you this thing is a work of genius from Lin-Manuel Miranda's pen. <laughs> well done. Okay. Well done. That was good, Jeff. That was good. Thank Nicely you. Nicely done. I was actually half uh, half hoping you were going to do that, Jeff. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is your first time ever watching this musical, right? Indeed. In fact, I had stayed away from even the soundtrack because I wanted to have the, yeah. I, yeah. like I said, I had tried the entire run that it was in Los Angeles. I tried to get lottery tickets. My wife and I had talked many times about literally just flying to New York, seeing the show mm -hmm. and flying home. Like that was the entire <laughs> reason of, we never pulled that trigger because the, you know, the price tag of that was astronomical, but we, you know, we flirted with that idea and went, what would it really cost? We even didn't spend the night at all. We didn't have a hotel room. We just flew back and talked about all that stuff. We really wanted to see it. And it just never happened. It just never happened. And um, I'm so glad that I'm able to see it now. I still wish I had seen it first uh, on stage. I mm -hmm. think that would have been, as somebody who loves theater and the theatrical experience, I think that um, I still want to see it live. Yeah. But to be able to see, uh, we would never have been able to see the uh, original cast. And to be able to see the original cast and Lin-Manuel perform this part and um, it, 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 with this level of, uh, you know, I think Devendra explained it very, very well. It It is shot more like a concert film or some sort of rock concert, you know, captured uh, for all time. And And the care that was taken, the expense that was put out to make sure that this version didn't feel like a less than kind of uh, experience. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a big fan of the um, National Theater Live stuff. I think I've talked about it on the show a few times. But a lot of that stuff clearly doesn't have the budget to be filmed like this does. Or, it, you know, the, the, 
the amount of effort hasn't been put in to record them. Uh, I think they're still worthwhile viewing experiences, but you can just see when the, going above and beyond really does mm-hmm. yield benefits. So I, I think as a film experience, it's pretty darn great. And the audio is great and you really get to be in close and you see, you know, a lot has been made of uh, the actor who plays King George's spittle. You know, you really get to see <laughs> up close in a way that live audience wouldn't, yeah. w- wouldn't. Either. And Mindhunter fans can finally know where many of us know him from. So yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have, I have so many things to, to say about this. I'll talk a little bit about the, the play itself i am not a huge fan of musical theater I, i'm much more of a straight theater mm-hmm. guy um and i was a little surprised at how musical theatery this show is i mean obviously a lot has been made of it being this utterly inspired brilliant mashup of hip-hop culture of american history and of a rock opera like somehow those three influences are all fused in this completely original way i just assumed the the hip-hop side of it was more dominant but Mm -hmm. it is a real rock opera i mean there are there are real uh musical theater set piece moments there are songs songs i mean obviously a rap song is a song as well but i mean more traditional um uh, musical theater type songs you know ballads and and um, and I, I just, I didn't anticipate that. I, I thought that was interesting. Um, it, it's a tour de force and it's denser than I think any other theatrical experience I've ever seen. Just the Does number of the words, words, the most words per minute for any, any Broadway show. It has I to have that has, record, yeah, right? It yeah. has to, there's no way there's I can't so give much. anything unless there's a, some Rogers and Hammerstein <laughs> thing that, you know. The modern major general boxing in Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. 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 Well, they, you know, they do do. this website that I just Googled. It has over 20,500 words in its two hour and 23 minute runtime, which works out to about 144 words per minute. Wow. That's faster than I can type. (laughs) Um, the, yeah, the, uh, some of the, the patter songs of Rogers and Hammerstein probably had, you know, quick lyrics, but nothing, nothing like this. And over the long, Distance and also the fact that there, there is it's almost completely it's a it's a true opera you know it is almost completely um, song for, throughout. Um, it also occurs to me. I mean, it, it's hard to overstate how brilliant this mm-hmm. thing is. It's also hard to point out anything about it that hasn't already been said over and over and over again. Yeah. So I don't want to belabor it, but as somebody who's just watching it for the first time. It is truly an astounding work. I mean, it is utter the fact that one guy did the music, the book, the you know, performs the lead part. It is completely astounding how he managed to do an authentic telling of this part of American history that is oft overlooked. This character who is and the and the and the show is really about this this uh, idea of who tells your story who writes mm-hmm. history and ha- who is lost in the margins of history uh and to synthesize that through voices and styles that are w- w- wouldn't really get a chance to tell this kind of story uh before now and how that 
spins it in such a profound way and makes it land differently. It seems to me, and maybe I'm not the first person to point this out. I'd be shocked if I was. It seems to me that this is as close to an experience of an Elizabethan watching a Shakespeare play as we can have in modern times. Hmm. This must be what it was like for Shakespearean audiences to walk into the Globe Theater and see one of Shakespeare's histories. He, Lin-Manuel is doing the same exact thing that Shakespeare did, presenting a, a history. There's no, there's no way that Shakespeare's histories, we know this, right, right. They, they, they weren't presented where everyone was trying to create a, a verisimilitude of, of the exact moment in history. No, no, he was using vernacular of the time, styles of the time, wordplay, rhyme. He was creating, he was using everything at his disposal, placing these things that happened in the history of the people for whom he was presenting his plays, using everything of their time to make the history that happened before them relevant, vital, relatable, and have energy. He was using sex and jokes and, uh, you know, anachronism all the time throughout that. And that is exactly the techniques that Lin-Manuel Miranda is employing. He is having his characters speak in very modern slang and use, uh, use meta commentary and, uh, rhyme and all of the, all of the things that resonate to an audience today that is grown up in hip hop culture and, uh, has a very modern sensibility to enliven, energize a story that is relevant in our history, relevant to the effects of today, the events of today, as Devendra has already pointed out. It is a magical thing, and it is a work of staggering genius, staggering genius. Now, having said that, it is also a, a, of a musical theater style that I has never particularly resonated for me, right? The very much on the nose, I'm telling you exactly how I feel I'm explicitly saying out loud my subtext. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's musical theater, right? Yeah. So so there is a lot so, of so that. So you need to buy into the conventions of musical theater to fully enjoy this as a Correct. piece of storytelling, right? And that's one of the things I did not anticipate, right? I thought it was so I I, you know, the the hype around it had led me to believe that it was such a departure that it really was not going to use those tropes and uh, there's a bit of me that's a little just because that's not my jam. There's a little of me like, oh, there's it's a lot more musical theatery than I thought it was going to be. It's still just an unbelievably powerful and effective work of art. And one that is. It, it is so finely crafted, so immaculately composed. Every word resonates. And I have to thank you, Dave, for suggesting that I, uh, watch it with the um the subtitles on the closed captioning on i don't think i would have thought of that but i think that that is actually a, a one way in which this home movie version of the play mm -hmm. 
can possibly actually transcend the live experience. Uh, well, let me, let me just say, though, because I brought this up in our chats. I, I see how that could be useful. And I suggested that being a good thing for your rewatch because you will certainly be rewatching this thing. But yeah, man, I, yeah, I watch movies with subtitles all the time. I I know how to make them not distracting. It's another thing when it's a language you already understand and you're still seeing the words and then like your attention is split in a way, but I guess you enjoyed it, Jeff, right? I did. I loved it. I I turned it on. I tried it uh, a little without, and my wife and I turned it on immediately. And I think it really improved our enjoyment of, of the movie because none of, none of the, wordplay none of the 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 quick lyrical flourishes were missed right we caught everything we got to see it and go oh yeah and you know there was was actually impressed by how well the subtitles captured virtually everything right like oh they are i I don't recall missing anything that was important Um, yeah it, it is it is very very well done closed captioning yeah. uh it, it, clearly there was a lot of attention put on that yep and you you'd always know who's speaking it, it is very it's really really expertly done and it reminds me of a um a revolution that happened in 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 actual opera not rock opera but actual opera the the opera opera uh, about 15 20 years ago maybe more now um when super titles were introduced now opera of mm-hmm. course is most often performed in a language that is not English, right. but they found out that, oh my gosh, English audiences will be so much more uh, engaged in our show if they can actually read what is being sung uh, as it's happened in super titles, even on live performances, they, they, you know, shoot the lyrics above the, the actors uh, above the stage so that you can read it as they're singing. And it actually made revitalized opera to a whole new yeah age group I, I've, uh, seen, I've seen a bunch of shows with those and that's fantastic when you're watching an italian opera or something my my thing here is guys it's okay if you don't catch everything the first time this thing is moving so fast so fast and like to really experience it right to sit there and go with this ride because you don't know where this thing is going for me it's great not having that roadmap at the beginning um, and that's probably what I'd recommend to most people. But yeah, your rewatch, your second watch, third watch, whatever, then turn on the subtitles. Get that map. But, for, for the record, yeah. I disagree. Yeah. You know, because I think no, like, I know for, you disagree. For, I'm just I'm just putting this out there because both of <laughs> yeah. you are into this idea. I'm just saying the entire show does not agree with this plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Hundred uh, percent. There's diversity of opinion on that point. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's a it's a big source of frustration to not understand what's happening. And I mean, I think that. When I watched the first, sh- when I watched it live, I, w- I saw the Pantages in L.A. Um, in person, and I, I would say I understood about seventy percent of the lyrics, right? Because you know, like uh, the acoustics and people singing, and there's like often there's like multiple voices at once, and it's just like um, I, sure, I caught about sure, sure. sixty to seventy percent of what they said. But I caught, this is like, a perfectly captured. Yeah, they had a hundred microphones around the stage. This thing was perfectly captured for you audio wise, so. Oh, not, not uh, the same thing. Yeah, you mean this uh, the this, Disney Plus, Disney Plus version. version? Yes, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I was like actually really looking forward to. You know, I remember when I watched it in person. I was like, man, hopefully one day I get to watch this thing with closed captionings. And Disney Plus made my dream come true. And it is for me, it's a source of frustration to not understand everything that's happening. So uh, to me, it's just like eliminating a source of fr- friction, a source of frustration when watching it, uh, which is why I appreciated having the caption on. But that's me. Yeah. Um, anyway, Jeff, 
Sorry. Uh, did you have any? No, no, I, 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 I think I'm done. I, I, you know, I really, I really love that. For me, I think the first half is better than the second half. Uh, I think the, the second half really is much more the musical theater half. Um, I don't know how, if this statistically accurate, but it felt that way. Um, and, um, there's a lot of the emotional beats in the second half that I appreciated. I mean, it's great. It's, it's hard to nitpick and I'm, I don't mean to, um, it is, it should be viewed by all humans. It is, it is a work of art that is seminal. I mean, it is going to mark this century. I think it is Mm -hmm. a thing that will transform the medium of musical theater. I think it is a, uh, you know, it is one of those pillars in the timeline of theater uh, of art. It is, truly that good and that important and that amazing and, and the fact that it was it was created by one person is is staggering i agree with pretty much everything both of you guys said you know other than davinder's remark about the subtitles i, I agree with pretty much everything so like just kn- know that as context before i say anything else i'm about to say i agree it's it was amazing watching it in the theater was amazing watching it at home was amazing i was deeply moved by it in a way that i wasn't really prepared for and i think that there are a lot of advantages to this film version. One of them is, as we've already discussed, you can see people's expressions. It's a lot easier to see people's expressions when the camera is three feet away from them than when you are sitting in the uh, nosebleeds, right? And <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. so you're, you're like almost experiencing- Which still costs $200. Right, you're, but you're almost like experiencing a different show almost because it's like, wow, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't understand like this is actually what was happening the first time I saw it, you know, because I was so far away, I couldn't really see what was going on. And- um, the way they filmed it uh, really does like they really play up those aspects of it. I, I do think that um, there are a lot of cuts in the show. Um, I think that uh, there are some songs like um, you mean cuts being that parts of the show that were in the live version that they removed. No, no, no. I'm no, sorry. They I edited mean, like a lot, a lot of edits, right? Yeah. Like, oh, 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 um, oh, oh, oh. There are some songs like King George, Jonathan Groff, like singing where the camera will stay on one shot for a while. Um, but that's pretty rare, right? Because it, it's just one dude. They can't just cut back and forth for one dude. But typically when there's like a whole, like there's 30 people on stage and they're all dancing, the, the camera will cut pretty rapidly. And I did find that occasionally to be distracting because, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's hard to appreciate the choreography and take in the full stage when you have a close up and then you cut to a wide shot and then you cut to a close up again, you know, um, but that's just like inherent in what they were trying to do with this. So I, yeah, I don't necessarily yeah, fault yeah. it. I'm just saying like, for me, maybe like a few, like a, 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 a fewer cuts would have uh, benefited what they were attempting to do, I think. Um, but, but overall, I, this is a great presentation. And I think uh, all of you guys are right about the fact that it's a towering work. It's, uh, I was listening to Lin-Manuel Miranda getting interviewed by Fresh Air today. And he was saying that he wanted to be a musical theater kid and he realized mm-hmm. he couldn't be a musical theater kid because there were not enough parts for people that look like him, right? That mm. um, wow. there were not enough parts for Latino actors. Yep, um, yep. And, he could and even not- even things like West Side Story, which would still be typically casting Latino roles with white actors. Yeah, yeah. And and so he's like, the, the only way I can have a future in it is if I like write my own future, right? You know, in a way that is kind of parallel to Alexander Hamilton himself who wrote his way into the history books. Um, and uh, that's very powerful. I think it's very powerful. The, the idea of who gets to tell your story and recontextualizing this story with uh, black, brown, and Asian actors forces you to think of the fact that, hey, for most of American history, we've been told the story by... Um, white people, 
And what would the story, how would the story be different if it was told by different people? Um, what this musical gives you a good impression of is how it would be stylistically different uh, if yeah. it was told yeah. by different people. However, uh, I don't know that it gives you a different uh, version of the story uh, in terms of the actual content of the story. I mean, I think that uh, uh, Jamel Bouie in his Letterboxd review of Hamilton puts it really well. He says, quote, the Hamilton of the play is practically contemporary versus the real life Hamilton, a complicated and challenging figure whose aims and views resist easy co-optation into one ideological perspective or another. Beyond the problems in the depiction of Hamilton, there is the reverent, uncomplicated view of the American Revolution the decision to race-bend the framers and their associates, which lends an air of radicalism to the proceedings, obscures the extent to which this is a wholly traditional vision of the founding, focused on entirely an elite cadre of wealthy owners of land and people. Black and Native people were pivotal to the revolution, how it began, how it was fought, how it was resolved, but there are no Black or Native characters in the play, end quote. Uh, and... I, I think that is true. I, I agree wholeheartedly with this assessment. It is a very conservative telling of this story, which is uh, it actually downplays, uh, you know, Hamilton's like, like it makes Hamilton almost out to be an abolitionist, which he definitely was not in right, real right. life. And yeah, um, yeah. It, and even though it portrays all these characters as complicated, it doesn't necessarily portray their contributions as complicated. And what I mean by that is like, yes, Hamilton. Uh, was a genius, and he was also apparently like a raging asshole, right? Like the Reynolds pamphlet was like, that's just this is crazy, you know? It's I mean, fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the the so for those who don't know what the Reynolds pamphlet was, just to remind you, right? Like he was caught cheating on his wife, and the per, the the husband of the woman he was cheating on his wife with said, "Okay, I'm cool with this, but you have to pay me." And by the way, I would recommend you watch like the Drunk History recounting of this by Lynn Mamela Miranda himself. <laughs> like, it's very entertaining. But uh, anyway, he's like, you have to pay me. And so then Alexander Hamilton's like, well, in order to prevent people from using this information against me, I am going to write a pamphlet in which I explain everything that happened. And he just like published, you know, <laughs> this is like the ver this is like the 200 years ago version of like a Twitter apology, except it was like really rare for people to do something like this. He yeah. basically- It's like what Bezos did. Yeah, it's he, like what Bezos so. did. he pulled a Bezos. He pulled a Bezos. <laughs> basically torched his entire personal life, disgraced his family and his wife. Uh, like, you can't fuck with me. I'll fuck with me. <laughs> I mean, that is, it's like he, he pulled an Eminem at the end of 8 Mile. You know, like, it's just like- <laughs> It's just crazy that he did this and um, and doesn't necessarily reflect well on him. And, and also, like, it, it is kind of... I'm, I was very moved by the end of the show. Obviously, with Eliza and her t her finally getting a chance to tell her story, which has largely been absent from most of the musical, and uh, Hamilton's life flashing before his eyes, uh, I just thought it was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's incre mm -hmm. I'm reaching new heights of emotion watching this. At the same time, I'm kind of like, Dueling just feels like such a dumb reason to die by contemporary standards. <laughs> it's dumb. Yeah. It was dumb. Yeah. Like I, I don't. Yeah, I, and here's the thing: since the since the actual musical was you know a huge hit, there has been a lot of criticism of the show and kind of what it represents. And everything Jamel Bowie is saying is certainly true. I don't think like the the 
I think what they were going for was specifically the Hamilton story as framed by that biography. And I'm not sure what right. it's, it's a version. It's a version of yeah. the, the American myth and the founding of America that yeah. we've been told before, right? It's just told in it's, a different way with well, different people. And that different yeah. way is, I think is, is at least still an admirable lens to look at something from, because it's still, yes, it's the, it's the story we know framed a little differently, but giving us certain other perspectives too, because I don't think, other, you know, looking at the story, I don't think the his immigrant aspect, the idea that he was he was not American, that is kind of, you know, hounded here. That's a major part of the musical. And I think it resonates differently when you see actors of color actually playing, you know, huh. him and those characters like that. That works a little differently. Um, Asha Romano at Vox had a really great piece about Hamilton as a work of fan fiction. And I feel like mm. that is the main, that's what it is, right? This is not a, rep, it's not a accurate representation of history. There's a lot of like flourishes being told here, but it is using those characters and those ideas in different ways to make us rethink how we view that history. And to me, that's yeah. still, yeah, that's still remarkable. I mean, this show helped to launch many, many careers. Uh, it helped yep. to give black, brown, and Asian people a voice in, you know, the American theater scene. Those things are all great things, and it's praiseworthy. And that's even separate from the fact that it is an astounding work of art, right? So I, I love this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, like, I've, it's been repeating in my head all weekend since I've watched it. I'm going to watch it over and over again. So it's great. At the same time, as all those things are true that I just said, um, it also tells like a very conservative story of the founding of America, right? And and we can we can certainly acknowledge that in a time in which uh, monuments to uh, old founding fathers uh, that uh, we were kind of taught a fairly uncomplicated version of in mm -hmm. grade school, at least I was, you know, uh, are being torn down on a daily basis in America right now. And I think that, and so to finish with the point I was making earlier, right? Hamilton, the guy, is complicated in the story, but the things that he did for America in general are framed to be an absolute good. And, and by, by, to, to be absolutely clear too here, Dave, most of the things being torn down are not founding fathers. It is, you know, it is stuff from... Um, well, from well, I mean, I think George Washington the being the most controversial one. I mean, yes, yes, George yes. Washington is a major hero in this play. He is mm -hmm. very revered in this play uh, or a musical. Um, mm -hmm. And he was a slave owner, right? Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I think that... No, I'm, the, just, I'm talking the, about that one specific statement you made is because it's more, it's more Confederate... You know, modern. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Right I got now. Like, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is the difference. And by the way, the the sort of like history flip flopping and the thing Trump even said in his uh, in his speech, right, is trying to conflate the idea that taking down Confederate heroes and statues is the same as attacking the founding fathers. That's not necessarily true. And I think there's a, there's a lot of great stuff you can go read about, like, how terrible many of the founding fathers was uh there there was a great smithsonian piece from i think 2013 or 2012 uh, about uh thomas jefferson and the sort of like horror show that was monticello it is it's also staggering like yeah you'll see yeah, him yeah. in the show like he he is fun and he's dancing but man what a shit <laughs> exactly exactly and, yeah. and i think i think you're right you're right to bring those things up and i think it's just like hey um, there's, uh, I'm not saying he, he shouldn't have, you know, yeah. I, I am not at all saying Lin-Manuel Miranda should have made a different musical. He should have acknowledged how problematic these guys are. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah, I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that, 
um, when you watch it, it's just important to be aware of those things. You know, it's just important to be aware of the reality mm-hmm. of things um, and still celebrate the fact that this is a great work of art. You know, like you can, uh, and I think Lin-Manuel Miranda has been so gracious and so uh, open to criticism. And he's like, I, I saw him on Twitter very recently. He's like, yeah, I I packed like six years of uh, of knowledge and work into the two and a half hours of this musical. But like, it is all fair game for criticism, you know. It, he he acknowledges that like yeah, all yeah. these all these characters were complicit in the system of racism and slavery that the country is founded on, and and he acknowledges that the musical does not acknowledge it, uh, or at least it, it does a fairly poor job of acknowledging it in my uh, in my opinion. Um, but it, it's just uh, it's just stuff that like given that this is coming out at this time, I think people have been calling this like a, a, um, a product of the Obama era. Right, which I, uh, I've I've kind of been thinking about that. Like, what does that exactly mean? Sure, and sure, sure. and uh, you know, the Obama era I think was like very hopeful. This idea that like, hey, um, uh, if I'm to condense what that statement means or or ponder what that statement means to me, it's that like Hamilton at its core is a musical about how um, black and brown people and Asian people can still have a, a seat at the table when it comes to telling the story, even though that story still remains relatively simplistic in yep. its depiction of these characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that now, in American society, we're probably ready to move on from that. We're probably ready for something more complex. That's kind of how I come away from this, you know, is I think this is a great work. I love it so much. Um, but also I think, uh, real reality has shown that like, uh, sure. we are, we are ready for more complicated versions of which what is a good was. thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. 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 I agree. So, Can I say one last thing, Dave? Please go ahead, Jeff. At least Hamilton earns its title. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is no Capone we're talking about, right? <laughs> this is no Lincoln. You get, right? you, this get, is, this you is... get everything from Hamilton between like when he's 14 years old all the way to his yeah. death. This is a complete Hamilton. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you get talk- the full Hamilton. This isn't a slice of Hamilton. Can we share uh, favorite moments in the musical? Is that I, I want to make sure we cover this before we sure. wrap up. Um, I'll say my favorite moments. Uh, Satisfied, I think, that, sung by the Schuyler sister, um, played by Renee uh, Elise Goldsberry. Uh, where they, she does the thing where like she rewinds time in the musical. Mm-hmm, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. Uh, just incredible. I'd never seen anything like that before. And um, she, by the way, that actress is amazing. She also performed in the documentary now version of Co-op, if any of you have seen that as well. Um, so she's just a, an amazing talent. Uh, I think Leslie Odom Jr. is the MVP of this this musical. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. is, in my opinion, the best performer and, and, and the most is asked of him as well. I, I, I think um, The Room Where It Happens is probably like one of my favorite tracks. And what an amazing track too, because in my opinion, that song is about Aaron Burr's naked ambition. He doesn't have any desire beyond wanting to be in The Room Where It Happens. Not like, not like here's my point of view. Like, why wasn't this advocated for? He's like, I just want to be in the room where it happens. And yeah. uh, I love that. Part it, of the thing. Yeah. I just, I yeah. love that it turns his naked ambition into like this super catchy, this catchy uh, song. Um, yeah. And uh, I already talked about the ending and how like his whole, like Hamilton's life flashes before his eyes. And 
he calls uh, America the great unfinished symphony, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's like this this beautiful notion of like, hey, even though he's dying for what are really stupid reasons, <laughs> um, that listen, uh, things were uh, things were different <laughs> back then. New Jersey, lawless hellscape, uh, same as it ever was. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I think I think that uh, even though he's dying for for dumb reasons, that this idea that like, hey, um, each of us can only hope to contribute. Uh, part to America's story. We don't know how it will be remembered, but we can only like do our best to make it the best it can be. You know, America's story is still being told today, and we're still uh, learning how it's being told every single day. We're really, really experiencing it in real time right now. So, uh, yeah, I thought all that stuff was. I beautiful. think you guys are being harsh. How is he to know? That a duel could turn out badly. I mean, what at po- what point in his life? It's not he like he's partaken lesson? in multiple duels before until that point, or that someone yeah. close to him had died from one. Oh, also, somebody pointed this out. Um, one of the, you know, Jeff, I thought you'd appreciate this, but uh, you may have noticed that actors play multiple roles in the, yes. in the musical, right? And so, uh, what's what's awesome is there's that song at the beginning where, uh, you know, the actors are like. Uh, we fought with him, you know, I died for him. And it's like those actors fought with him in the first half of the play, like they fought on his side. But then in the second half, they played characters that fought with him, like, because they were Mm -hmm. against him. Right. And then like, I died for him. And it's like, he played two characters that died for him. Um, You know, and so it's just, yeah, it's just amazing wordplay. This is yeah. this is like Jeff Kanata's dream in terms of wordplay. I think. <laughs> it truly is. It truly is. Yeah. I my favorite uh, moments I think in the show are the I think it's two the two debates that oh, are played like rap, rap battles. battles. Yeah. Oh, it's such a brilliant conceit to go. Oh, this is how the debates would work in the context <laughs> of this show. You know, it's so great. It's so cool. There is a uh, apparently a third rap battle that was cut from the show. Uh, mm. That I would actually recommend, because it kind of calls out the fact that Washington was a slave owner, and the the show didn't really address that very much. Um, but I would recommend that you can it's it's viewable online, I believe, on YouTube. So, uh, but ch- yeah, I would recommend the third unseen rap battle if you have a chance. Um, any other favorite moments from the show that you guys want to want to share before we wrap up here? I just feel like it is um, sitting there in the theater. That whole the opening selections just alexander hamilton aaron burser my shot like just leading into that and then right into um you'll be back like this show opens so strong it's just so insane to me and then yeah i love satisfied i love everything too have to say my favorite thing in this viewing was um during you'll be back uh we were watching it with sophia and when king george is doing his little la da da di da thing she just started doing it too and on the one hand, I was like Adorable. very proud of her. Aww. I was like, man, not that song. Come on. Come on. It, it is the simplest like show tunesy song for uh, like on purpose. So that's why she kind of latched onto it. But I just find that kind of funny. Jeff, anything else you want to uh, opine about? Yeah, no, I think I think the the way that you kind of get shot out of a cannon in the show yeah. and, and you're yeah. you're in it. It is. Uh, that's why for me, I, I say I, as much as I love the whole thing, I think the first half is, I prefer it to the second half because the second half just kind of, you know, it leans into the... It's, it's, it leans, it's mostly about his personal life, right? It's mostly yeah. about like, hey, I slept with this woman by accident. Right. But and, and there's those sweet moments where the... the I love that song. I can't remember the name of it. The, the song about, you know, if you see them in the park, 
don't judge them, you know, walking hand in hand and all that stuff about her forgiveness. That that moment is so, so powerful. Yeah. Um, but, and so, the, you know, the second half does have incredible moments, but I just love the pace and the, you just feel like, oh, oh my God, I have to hold on tight. Oh yeah. Because this show is, is taking me out with it. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say this, the second half, that is where, like you said, Jeff, most of the emotional beats are. I don't think I can ever listen to this show or even watch it again now that it's readily available without crying during the second half because there's so much between the sequences where his son dies and the kind of aftermath to that. And Philippa Sue, Philip, all of Philippa Sue's work uh, where she is grieving as a mother and singing about it. And yeah. there are, there are tears. So powerful. There are tears on the stage. You know, it's so powerful. It is, yeah. it is incredible. Um, yeah, she plays Eliza in, in the show. Hey, let me ask you guys this question. Um, there's this moment at the end of the show that I thought was very interesting. I didn't remember it, uh, but it, the show ends with Eliza and talking about her, how she helped to secure Hamilton's mm-hmm. legacy. And there's this moment when the actress, Philippa Sue, kind of looks up at the sky and is overwhelmed with emotion. And then like the show ends on that. And get, she kind of gasped. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. interpreted that as being um, kind of like all of this is is takes place in the moment of his death, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we see the ramifications. We it's like that the spindles of time extend out, and we see what happens to all the people in his life that we've encountered before. We see Eliza's eventual, and it all kind of takes place in this like narrative, omniscient voice, you know of. This is what happened next, and I got a chance to do this, and it's sort of like, you know, uh, explaining the end, mm-hmm. and then it, it, the way I interpreted that moment is it's flashing back to that moment again of her realizing he's dead, and that is the moment that we end on, is her reckoning with his death. That is maybe fasc- I'm wrong. That's fascinating. I, I have heard two other interpretations, Jeff, um, mm. of that ending. One is that that is the moment that she is dying, right? And, uh, and she is yeah. seeing Alexander Hamilton in the afterlife. And mm. the, the other moment that I thought was really interesting was, the other interpretation I heard that's really interesting is that she is, what she is seeing is she is seeing through the fourth wall and seeing mm. the audience and seeing the fact that like this is a part of the legacy for Hamilton that she helped to build. Yeah, interesting. Um, which I thought those are all those one. are all interpret like very interesting interpretations. Um, yeah, but it's a it's a great enigmatic moment in the musical mm-hmm. that like leaves it very open to interpretation. Um, yeah. So and, and I don't think any interpretation is wrong, but um, I think those are this fascinating that it's kind of left open to that. And I'd forgotten that moment because I think like. You don't really get to see her face when you're sitting in row, you, don't. you know, 59, right? And so, the whole energy of the show, you kind of miss, like, it's such a quiet thing, so you need that close-up to really understand what's happening. But, right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the advantage of uh, Disney Plus putting this out there. Anyway. Oh, one more quick moment that I, yeah. I loved is the the moment where he says, uh, you know, he's, he's getting shot, and he says, there's no melody, there's no beat, and then he does an extended several verses with no background music mm-hmm. it's just acapella mm-hmm. ah so cool such a great uh, flourish and uh, uh, the thing is the show is just has layers and is is beautiful it is um quite a quite a an achievement yeah it's i guess watching it now you can certainly see like oh this is why lin-manuel miranda is in everything now right, right. like why he has yeah. his fingers in so many disney musicals like go back and listen to 
all the Moana songs now. And you can kind of feel yeah. his trademarks from this. And by the way, Moana, perfect, perfect soundtrack, especially for babies. Oh, my God. I have been listening to the Moana soundtrack for on repeat, basically, yep. for weeks. My my kids, that the the song that The Rock sings. You're welcome. So good. So good. Yeah. You're welcome. It's so great. It's such a brilliant song. Anyway. There's also another thing. Uh, I didn't quite catch this, but basically at one point, uh, the play Macbeth is invoked. Jeff, is this a thing that you knew about? Like, it's bad luck to say Macbeth? Yes, on, on a stage mm-hmm. it is. It's bad luck to say it at all, but it is especially bad luck to say it on stage. You're supposed Thank to Thank you for cursing the sp- podcast, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to spit and spin around three times if you say it on stage. It is It is supposedly people have died for, for saying that, that word on a stage. I believe they say it in the show, though, right? Um, that is, that is the exception, right? You say it in the context of doing a play. It is, right. you, know, you obviously say Macbeth when you're playing Macbeth, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but but in, uh, in, in the show, well, I'm saying in Hamilton they say Macbeth, and, right? And I, I, the you know the rules of superstition are <laughs> unclear. Well, but it's in the context of saying it in a show, I don't think it, is, it counts. Gotcha. But, I don't but, know. but I, I, the thing that's interesting about the the play version is basically like Macbeth is invoked at one point. And that is basically the point at which everything starts to fall apart ah, for Hamilton. Interesting. Um, so that's cool. Also, another cool little reference there. Anyway, yeah, a lot of layers, uh, lots to peel back, uh, but hugely enjoyable experience. And yes, this was the result of a major tens of millions of dollars acquisition by a multinational conglomerate. Uh, that releases likely to get a leg up in the streaming wars that are currently being waged between multiple multinational conglomerates. But it's still kind of a miracle that we can see this thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, it's still kind of a little bit magical that we get some musical theater in our homes right no, now. No, must definitely. And so yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. All right. That's our review of Hamilton streaming right now on Disney+. Plus. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Check out his YouTube channel. And this episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Stay tuned to your we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Devendra Hardware, where can you find more of your work on the internet? Oh, I'm on Twitter and at Devendra, and I write about tech and gadget.com. Check out my more of my Twitter, my Quibi rants over there. I'm also doing the Engadget podcast, so check that out. Jeff Canada? You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Canada, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And hey, are you sick of hearing me talk about other people's stories? You want to hear me tell my own kind of story? I was just about to tell you. I'm sick of it, Jeff. Yeah, I know you are. You say that you, you text me... <laughs> Often, every, every day I text you this. Yes, I have my own story that I am telling. You can come and judge me the way I judge other people's stories. I would welcome it. Uh, it's called The Dungeon Run, it is an epic fantasy tale. Think Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. And uh, I am so proud of what we are making with The Dungeon Run. I'm also proud of the community of people. Join the community, it's extraordinary. There's a fan show every week anticipating on Tuesday nights, anticipating the show on Wednesdays. There's an incredible fan art community. Check it out. It's called The Dungeon Run. You can find it on YouTube by searching for The Dungeon Run. You can find it as an audio podcast by searching for The Dungeon Run. Or you can watch live Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Pacific time at caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. I also have two other shows, a video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC, and a 
comedy science show called We Have Concerns, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. Check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. I got a review of Hamilton on there. I got a review of Flora's Lava on there. It's not quite as passionate as the one that Jeff gave on tonight's episode of the podcast, but it's still pretty good. And check you out didn't my- know that we'd be talking about two works of genius on this one episode. It's true. You know what I'm saying? It, it's true. Um, I also was caught unaware. And uh, <laughs> check out my other podcast, Culturally Relevant, as well as Truth versus Hollywood. Uh, those are some other shows that I'm doing right now. Okay, next week on the podcast, we're going to be reviewing Charlie Theron's new action movie, The Old Guard. It's going to be on Netflix, and it should be a lot of fun. So oh, looking yeah. forward to talking about that with you guys. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, wear a mask. Wear a mask. See you later. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.